This week's Changing Minds Moving Forwards programme is a discussion between members of Grassroots Open, but with guests from all over Scotland in their Zoom meeting, and Graham McCormack and Kate Forbes. Graham McCormack has travelled around Scotland for the last few years presenting a model of annual ground rent. In his estimation, the model allows Scotland to raise current public expenditure levels substantially by introducing land tax at a rate depending on one of four land types. He reckons that not only can we raise the public revenue required to run Scotland, but can also slash the taxation of the vast majority of our taxpayers and abolish all other taxes. That's quite a claim. Kate Forbes is the Scottish Government Cabinet Secretary for Finance and she's been a member of the Scottish Parliament for the Sky, Loch Arbor and Badenoch constituency since 2016. So the evening is introduced and chaired by Ruth Barrett of Grassroots Oban and as always here at Indie Live Radio we're very grateful to Grassroots Oban for giving us permission to broadcast the event. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for uh, inviting me again. Uh, and uh, I'm, um, I'm particularly um, charmed, I think, to say and delighted that, uh, that Kate is joining us to discuss um, uh, my model of annual ground rent. Um, I've done a quick um, sort of presentation with a wee voiceover. I've never tried that before, um, so I'm just going to put this on. Um, my mother did actually have ambitions for me to be a minister at one time, and I think that when you hear this, you might uh, see certain traces of the Reverend I Am Jolly. Um, so uh, if you just bear with me, uh, I'll, I'll now put it on. Um, I hope that, I think most people probably have, have seen a presentation before or, or maybe um, scanned the book, um, but uh, we've got plenty of time for discussion and uh, questions afterwards. So I'll just say, uh, welcome to Agfer annual ground, floor and roof rent, funding towards a well-being society. Why land? It's constant, it can't be hidden. Policymakers divide it into four land types, rough grazing, forest and woodland, arable and urban. Because most properties are over one storey, we double the size of urban land types. So for Agfer Scotland space, which includes land and all floor and roof areas, is 84,820,000,000 square metres. Here are the areas and shares which each land type contributes to the national total. Urban is defined as all non-agricultural buildings and all buildings and land serviced by the public sewerage system. According to JERS, the total spending in or allocated to Scotland by all forms of government in the UK is £81,015,000,000. But Agfer allows us to substantially increase this by adding 10% of current Scottish Government spending plus £55 billion to provide an annual universal citizen's income of £10,000 for every Scottish resident. That gives a total spend of £138,440,700,000. The suggested rates per land type are for rough grazing 0.0166 per square metres. For woodland and arable, 0.051 pounds per square metres. And for urban, 10.01 per square pounds per square metre. You will note that on the right-hand column, over 98% of the funding comes from the urban land types. 
Here's how the owners of a typical suburban house calculate the liability for AGFA. They make their returns online and pay the AGFA to Revenue Scotland, which is the Scottish Government's tax Here we show how AGFA will be calculated for space which is not standalone. There are reliefs for agricultural buildings, how to calculate common property and tenements and common amenity areas. Owners of urban land type properties can recover the AGFA from their tenants. And rural landowners can recover half the AGFA from their tenants. To give you a flavour of the AGFA charged on some typical spaces, we've highlighted a modern semi, a small flat, a single fronted shop, a large arable farm, a small tenanted upland farm, and what Scotland's largest landowner would pay. As AGFA will replace all taxation, here is the estimated annual taxation a person on current average earnings currently pays and what he or she will save if they live in an average type of property under AGFA. A staggering £6,896. And that's before each occupant receives a UCI of £10,000. You must be wondering where all this extra money is coming from when people will save so much from their current tax liability. It's quite simple, but also remarkable. There is just so much space throughout our country which is not contributing anything to public funds through dereliction and a failure to maintain vast areas of public and private space. Some are individually very small, but taken together they form a massive untapped public funding source. So here's how Agfor can let Kate transform life in Scotland. Kate can end poverty with a universal citizen's income of £200 per week. Kate can end the concentration of land in the hands of very few, so everyone who wants to own a share can do so without subsidising the price from the public purse. With a UCI, Kate can ensure that those starting or developing a business have the comfort of knowing they have UCI to fall back on if their business takes time to become profitable, or even if it doesn't take off at all. And AGFR provides the flexibility to change and increase land types. Kate can cap, relieve or exempt the owners of certain types of species due to restricted incomes or other reasons. Kate can make Scotland the first truly property-owning democracy, where 10% of everyone's UCI is invested in Scottish business. Kate can deliver the land to solve the housing crisis, as the obligation to pay AGFR will force space owners who don't pay it to release land to be developed by the social and private housing sector. Kate could even encourage councils to raise most of their funds from their own AGFR land types and rates, so that support from the Scottish Government and national land types charges could be reduced accordingly. This would enhance the status and independence of local government. And even if technology reduces traditional work opportunities, Kate can ensure people have fulfilling lives through the UCI and investment in Scottish innovation and development. As you can see here, we feature the principal benefits to Kate of AGFR. They are not just for an independent Scotland, but as AGFR can be introduced under devolution, it puts money in the pockets of all of us now, including those still to be persuaded to vote yes. It provides the hard evidence that pensions and other public services will be even better under independence. To conclude this Tracy and AGFR, from this table you will see that while AGFA offers tremendous improvements in people's take-home income with devolution, they are substantially better with independence.
raises take-home pay income to levels enjoyed by our Norwegian and Swiss friends. In the forthcoming independence referendum, she who controls all Scotland's public funds will control the debate. AGFA provides this control. If you would like a more detailed explanation of AGFA, why not buy a copy of my book? It's £10, including post, through PayPal, or email me on t1feu at hotmail.com. Well, oh ye of great faith, eh? It sounds like I'll be fixing all the problems, <laughs> from tax to land to housing and everything else. Um, not just that I'm capable of fixing all the problems, but you make it sound like I'll be around for a while fixing all the problems. Uh, but just a, f a few um, short comments from me, and then I think we were doing a more conversation style from, from as I as I uh, understood. So um, I'm certainly not here, you'll be relieved to know, as an expert on Graham's model. I'm steeped in right now the in devolved taxation, the, the rights and wrongs, the flaws, the benefits, the opportunities, the disadvantages of that. And I do want to have a, a discussion, not just on where we're at just now, but where we want to go and what we want to change. Now, I say all that looking at the audience we have just now, and that's why I say I want to have a conversation, because I see some familiar faces and, and not to put them on the spot, but I think Lauren McLeod is also here who actually sits on the expert advisory group on uh, tax on land and property. So there's a lot of uh, intelligence, expertise and talent. And I think if we achieve anything tonight, it's definitely having more of a conversation and a discussion about these matters uh, than anything else. I said that I was steeped in uh, devolved tax and, and that's true. I have got to make our tax levers in this devolved setup go as far as possible. And the tendency or the risk I think with independence is that you take what you've got and you build on it rather than tearing the house down and starting from scratch. Now, we have got a particular approach to making devolved taxation work with a limited number of tools. I don't think tax was ever designed to be looked at in isolation of each individual tool because the individual tools all contribute to either the overall tax burden or the overall impact on behaviour or the overall uh, justices or injustices that we see in society. And right now we've got this bizarre situation where we only control some taxes and of the taxes that we control, we only control some of them. So even in Graham's um, presentation just now, he talked about the cumulative tax burden of of VAT as well as council tax and other things. And of course, when you are trying to um, ensure that the overall tax burden or tax package or tax uh, toolbox of levers works, you've got to make sure that each individual lever that you have is contributing to that aim, which is something we can only do in part right now. So the, the two options are to take what we have, to accept it, and just to inherit more powers when we become independent. And in so doing, you inherit all the shortcomings, you inherit a very uh, complex uh, uh, tax system. And if I remember back to the days that I sat in my accounting classes being introduced to each new tax or each new 
uh, element of each tax and being told by semi-neutral professors or lecturers that such and such a tax or such and such an avoidance technique or tactic was introduced just in advance of this election or just after that election or just when this chancellor was trying to woo a certain uh, demographic. And all of that complexity, we have one of the most complex tax systems. So actually holding politicians like me accountable for what we do and what we don't do is really difficult because of that complexity and understanding the intended and unintended consequences of such a complex system eh, is also um, very difficult to do. And of course, eh, politics thrives the more confusing it is because it reduces accountability and that is not something that we should celebrate at all. We need to have maximum transparency and uh, accountability. So I am very, uh, very sympathetic to the notion that at, on the event of independence, we look collectively at all the levers that we have, and then secondly, figure out what we're trying to achieve with it. Now, right now, there's a lot of conversation and talk about two things. One is how we simplify the tax system, but also how we tax wealth better or wealth more. And we'll watch out over the next uh, few uh, weeks. We don't currently have uh, powers over much uh, wealth tax. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Not that I want to ever um, uh, refer to the UK government, but we'll see what happens after all that talk about taxing wealth more. What are you trying to achieve with tax? This is my point two. Point one is, was just that point where you either start from scratch or you build on what you've got. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's far more advantageous to uh, consider um, collectively what we can do rather than just um, deal with the, the, the individual levers. But secondly, what are you trying to achieve with tax? And there's obviously a whole host of different purposes that I'm already trying to balance. Sometimes they are mutually exclusive purposes. So in trying to, for example, set a budget, I need to have a guaranteed source of revenue. I need to know that at the end of the day, that health service can keep running. I need to know that the teachers can get paid. I need to know that the streetlights are gonna go on. In other words, I need to have a guaranteed source of revenue. Secondly, another purpose and objective is what behavior you're trying to incentivize or disincentivize. Now, we see that at its um, most acute when it comes to something like plastic bag levies. So you're putting a levy on plastic bags to reduce uh, its, its use. But you can see that in, in slightly um, stranger ways when it comes to something like uh, income tax. So are we trying to incentivize or disincentivize somebody to earn more? Um, are we trying to incentivize or disincentivize uh, corporations, enterprises to hide their, to, to, to avoid tax or to pay their tax? So there's questions there about how you incentivize and disincentivize behavior. And the third um, objective is how you right wrongs, how you make the world better. And this is where uh, Graham's model really comes into its own because it's a question about how you use resources better. And that for me, looking at some of the theory of, of land valuation taxes is, is one of the overriding um, uh, uh, advantages of, of a tax like that or, or, or ground rental where you are um, it, trying to ensure that your resources are used as well as possible. And if we then apply that to Scotland, which is my third point, um, we have got this uh, bizarre situation in Scotland where uh, depopulation has been our biggest issue. 
where there are vast swathes of land um, unused, unutilised, um, where uh, house prices are um, far too high for people to get onto the, uh, uh, the, uh, the housing um, ladder, where uh, young people in, in my constituency in Skye uh, can't afford to stay because they can't find uh, housing where we have one of the most concentrated um, patterns of land ownership. Now, I say all that because if you were to separate each of those three objectives that I've just outlined when it comes to tax and not think of the other two, then you would think, why are we not making changes already? The difficulty with any, if we go back to my point number one, which is do you just tweak it or do you start from scratch? And then you go into point number two, um, which is, um, you know, how do we ensure that we are achieving our objectives when sometimes those objectives are uh, mutually exclusive? So you could theoretically raise more revenue, but without writing any wrongs and without we're just exacerbating injustice. Or you could tackle questions of injustice whilst at the same time uh, not having guaranteed revenue. So these are some of the objectives that I've got to weigh up when it comes to a uh, taxation for devolved purposes. If you take income tax as one example, people often say, well, why don't you increase the top rate to 50%? Well, if you do that, our best available evidence, and we do press for the best available evidence, suggests you'd actually get less because in terms of the tax base, there's such a high dependency on the highest paying uh, taxpayers that if just a few of them were to choose to spend to pay less because they moved their address just south of the border which you can do because we're not an independent country we're a devolved uh, government and therefore it's harder to control the border if you were to do that then you'd end up with less revenue so these are the the real challenges when it comes comes to tax but in scotland and um, the third point is that one of the major injustices does concern uh, disconcern land. In terms of um, uh, briefly uh, on, on land value tax or, or, or ground rent, um, uh, and again, I'm not speaking as somebody who's an expert on Graham's model, and a lot of this is theoretical because of the situation we're in uh, just now. But in terms of uh, land uh, value tax, we know that right now um, a huge percentage of, of um, uh, the UK's wealth is tied up in land and property, but it actually is quite a low contributor to the tax base. And if you look at the percentage of revenue to my first objective that actually comes through taxes on land and property, it's very low. So, you know, there are big questions about how um, using land or, or, or putting a value on land, which is then generates a revenue will not only contribute more in terms of uh, public sector revenue, but also uh, deals with some of those, uh, those injustices. There have been suggestions, and I think, and Graham has made that suggestion as well, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to a, a land value tax, or when it comes to a, a, an equivalent, that it could replace all taxes so that you would have one single tax. And that goes to my point at the beginning about how you would re replace it collectively. The one caveat I would make to that is to analyse how our economy and the world is changing. So one of the, the challenges that I am trying to contend with just now 
is about the increasing, for example, digitalization of our economy. So if you take non-domestic rates just now, and we've used non-domestic rates as one of the, the primary ways of a uh, the primary ways of distributing funding uh, in terms of local government uh, grants. Now, the reason we've done that is because it's the best slash the only form of business tax. It's not actually a business tax, it's a property tax, but it's the closest thing we have in Scotland to business tax because we don't have control of a corporation tax. We don't have control over HMRC. So HMRC can see everybody who pays tax and they can choose how to distribute funding. So that's one reason why we aren't able to implement a universal basic income because we don't have that relationship with every citizen in Scotland in terms of what they make, what they pay, what they need. But in absence of that, then non-domestic rates is the closest thing we have to a business tax. But it completely fails to understand the way that, that our economy has changed. So for example, not that long ago, you could probably say, well, a fairly large factory is probably making a lot of money and therefore the rates it pays and rates are, of course, based on the rental value of the property. So the rates it pays, business rates, non-domestic rates, is probably not 100 miles away from its turnover because you needed space. Now, that doesn't add up. Now, you can have an incredibly successful tech company operating from a cupboard, not paying a single penny in rates, but earning huge amounts of cash, but not paying rates. So there is a big issue in ensuring that not only does the, the space that you occupy get taxed, but also what is actually going on in your business. And when Graham and I met, I think it must've been two years ago now, it seems to, time seems to have flown, that would be one of my one of my pushbacks is how do we ensure that this form of taxation keeps up with the world? So as if it were going to be the only tax that you're levying, because I don't think it therefore captures the, the huge rapid changes we've seen to our economy and the fact that whether you're in Oban or you're in Dingwall, or you're in Portree, you'll probably walk down that high street and you'll see a lot too many boarded up shops. And we know too that the pandemic has only exacerbated that shift to digital. And you know, it doesn't seem like a week goes by without another high street name, high street retailer going online. So Debenhams being bought up by, um, oh, so, you know, some of the online retailers um, and, and just buying um, not the, the store space, but buying um, the, the, the rest of the, the business. So I will stop there because what I've done is actually just throw in my theoretical considerations about all of this. And I'm not assuming to know all the answers because this is theoretical in nature. And one of the interesting things about land value tax is there's a lot of talk about its advantages or concerns but actually when it comes to finding empirical evidence of how it's worked or how it's not working it's very low on that because no country has successfully or definitively moved to some form of 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 land value tax or or, or ground rental and um, so scotland's always keen to to pioneer things um, but I also think that there are some, some important considerations around the way in which our economy is changing, 
balancing the multiple objectives we have from tax, um, and thirdly, um, the particular circumstances in Scotland when it comes to unfair concentrations of land. I'll stop there, and Graham, I don't know if I'm, I'm passing this back to you. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. That's uh, very, very interesting and uh, in many ways encouraging. Um, but I think probably since there's been quite a few, I think, questions and comments that uh, if we maybe get some more, first of all, before we. Uh... OK, if you want to do a few questions first, that's fine. Um, what I what I would say to um, I've got some questions that were were submitted before the meeting. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll go to those first. Right. So starting with the ones that the questions that I've already had submitted, um, Lee Gumbarrett. This is off topic, but I was taking the opportunity because you're here and you are the finance secretary. So I wanted to and I am an SNP member, by the way. So I just wanted because I am frustrated, as I think a lot of people are, that the government and the SNP the party has not been articulating a cogent, a clear uh, economic case for independence, which I think does exist. And, and just taking one of the things I mentioned was jurors. Why don't we publish an alternative set of accounts to that to show how it misrepresents the true wealth of Scotland? Um, it just seems that it's, we're missing a huge opportunity to change hearts and minds, mainly minds, because if people could understand that the economics of independence are actually quite favorable, then I think we would have, we would surge past 60% support, which is really what it's all about. Thank you. I'll say three things. One, I don't understand why we're so defensive about jurors, because for me, jurors is one of the most persuasive arguments against the union. And if I were to start producing alternative figures, um, I think it would be seen to be hiding what the, the truth that jurors reveals. Um, there is a case for alternative figures, so I'll come on to that. But I don't think we should be so defensive about jurors. Jurors is the most persuasive argument for the total and chronic inequality of the union. And we know that substantial percentages of both the revenue and the spend are still reserved. So if any unionist has a problem with the figures in jurors, then those problems should be taken up with the people that make the decisions, right now, it's not the devolved government. It's not it, the Scottish government. That's point number one. Point number two, in terms of the economic case, again, I think there is a very persuasive economic case. I think most of it is out there. And uh, part of it is to do with communicating that uh, persuasive case. We in the Yes movement and the SNP seem to get obsessed with things that actually don't matter so much to your average punter and your average voter. For example, we fixate on things like currency, which I'm not saying isn't important. Currency is hugely important. But right now, I've got people the length and breadth of this country writing to me because they're concerned about the food that they're going to put on their table because they've lost their job, where they're going to get their next job, how they're going to look after their business. They're at their wit's end. They're not complaining to me what colour their banknote are. They're complaining about whether or not they're going to get food to eat and whether they're going to get a wage. And that, for me, is the argument for independence. The independence lets us flourish and be prosperous so that you can put more food on the table, so that you have more economic opportunities when it comes to jobs, when it ensures that uh, new sectors um, thrive, would be my second point. And I think there's a question there about prioritisation. And um, a third one is this point that the First Minister keeps making during the pandemic, which is showing not telling. We can go to every front door, we can create the, the best leaflets that are about the, the economic case for independence. And some people will be interested, some people won't be interested. What they want to see is the reality. 
And what they've seen during the reality of the pandemic is this point around show not tell. They weren't interested in whether or not Scotland had borrowing powers until it made the difference whether they got uh, funding and grant support or not. They didn't care about Scotland uh, not being able to overspend its budget until it meant we can't actually put in place sufficient welfare support. And I think through the pandemic, we have seen the huge shortcomings of our financial and economic situation. Uh, and it's in real tangible form. It's in real tangible form. You can see it with your own two eyes. And that for me is more persuasive than, uh, that's not to say that we don't need theoretical arguments. We absolutely need theoretical arguments and we need answers. But I think what's more persuasive is helping people to see the reality, which is something that we've tried to, 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 to draw out over the last few weeks to the extent where nobody was talking about borrowing before I started banging on about the fact that we didn't have borrowing powers. Now everybody's talking about borrowing. That's a massive exaggeration. People are not all talking about borrowing, but you know what I mean? There's been a, a real shift in, in talking. Um, right, the next question. Thank you, thank you, Kate. The next question comes from Derek Ball. There you go. Derek Ball. Now, I'll do my best to remember the question that I sent in. Um, I think this is one for Graham, um, and it's about it's about the lead the the lead poisoning the huge um, huge grouse moors. Um, there's been so much uh, lead fired about that the, the the soil is full of lead, and even even though I I, I love the idea the pr principle, um, um, using using grouse moors as a source of taxation would mean that um, you know that may, well maybe they'd stop using it for for grouse moors, but what else could it be used for? It's poisoned. It's ruined. It's been wrecked already, and um, it's really fit for nothing. Um, so that's 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 you know that's one question. Could, could I could I slip in another question, and that is, um, I'm I'm impressed by 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 Kate's argument that a big switch over from the from the complicated tax system we have now to a very very simple uh, land tax model sounds like it's. Uh, no matter how logical it is, it sounds like a huge risk. And is there a gradual way of doing it, or has it got to be a sudden switch from one to another? Okay, Derek. Um, well, first of all, um, the condition of any property, with ownership of any property, also comes responsibility to maintain it. And if it's the case that uh, there is property or land um, which um, basically in some way is poisoned or, or, or dilapidated or anything like that. That responsibility remains whether you bring in AGFA or not. Uh, and uh, so, as I say, the responsibility would lie with the owner to deal with that. Now, that might well be something which has got to be done under environmental legislation. Uh, and then it's a matter basically of the authorities, whether it's the local authority actually bringing these uh, uh, these owners to book uh, so basically it's not that's not a, a, a specific problem of Agfa it exists just now uh, and uh, but uh, Agfa would, would, would potentially highlight it more because these owners of large tracts of land um, would probably find uh, in most cases that they couldn't afford to pay the Agfa for all their big estates 
uh, and uh, they are going to have to sort of look seriously at their financial model. It might be that we'd say, well, the game's a bogey, um, I'll give it up. I'll give it to the Scottish government. And it's up to the Scottish government whether, you know, they would accept it uh, and the terms under which they would accept it. So that's that's how that would operate. As regards the big risk, um, the great thing about AGFAR is that we know virtually all the information. It's not based on opinion, it's based on fact. We know the size of Scotland. Uh, we know how many people live in Scotland. We know basically the number of houses in Scotland. Uh, and um, if the Scottish government decide that in their programme for a year, it's going to cost so much, then it's just a matter really of dividing uh, the, the, the amount that they want as the cost of their programme against the, the square meterage. Subject to um, a slight change depending on the land types that are involved, because obviously there are, there are some such as urban land types which are, are much more capable of, uh, of meeting the cost, because you couldn't have the same cost per land type throughout the country. It just doesn't work, because otherwise you could well have a, a, a very modest farm paying something like £300,000 a year, and that's just not going to work. So that's why there's a different land types. But the, the actual um, principle behind it uh, is there uh, so that we know the information. It's not based on an economist's forecast of how much of that you could bring in if you did this or that, uh, or if you changed the, the income tax, because that, that depends on what people earn. And you don't know the start of a financial year what everyone's going to earn. At least with this system, you know exactly the start of the year. First of all, from a taxpayer's point of view, how much you're going to pay for the year, uh, and also from... Uh, Kate's point of view, she knows how much money she's got, you know, throughout the year because it's a it's more or less a certain amount. So that that's that's where the benefit. That's one of the major benefits of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the second one, um, I certainly wouldn't be recommending uh, something instant and sudden. So what I would be suggesting is that, you know, if you look as an example at our welfare powers. So when certain welfare powers were devolved, we chose on principle to do something completely different. So we built our new welfare powers up on the basis of the inherent human dignity of each individual that would be applying. And therefore, rather than treat individuals who are applying as though they're trying to scam the system, we start with a position from if somebody's a Applying, they need help and we're not going to penalise them from the get-go and we're not going to demand that they go through sort of inhumane or undignified processes. So that meant that we built that in to the way that we do systems. Now with tax it would be different but already if you look at the devolved taxes we do things differently. So if you take two of the, the devolved taxes, land and buildings transaction tax and uh, landfill tax, did you know that it compliance uh, is, is much higher in Scotland and avoidance is much lower because of the way that Revenue Scotland, which was created to manage devolved taxes, has been built and its approach. And it's, for example, it collaborates with other public bodies to try and get a broader range of data to then be able to understand um, uh, 
the state in terms of tax avoidance and tax compliance. So there's certain principles that you from the get go. And over time, you know, I, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't um, even uh, go here because you will all uh, criticize me if I do. But we've all been agreed that council tax needs replaced for a very long time. So there's some things where, you know, we, we, we come to an agreement that things don't work as they should. In some cases, it needs tweaked. In other cases, it needs completely overhauled. And that, for me, there's a question there about stability post-independence. I think that's an absolutely essential criteria. But if we're going to take on, for example, corporation tax, well, what are the principles that underpin that? Is it just a principle of raising money? Is it a principle about fairness? Is it a principle there about avoidance and everybody paying their fair share? Well, I think there are some principles which I don't think are fully captured or implemented in the, the way the system currently operates. Could, could, I, could I just come back there, uh, Kate? Um, one of the concerns that I have um, in moving to independence is that um, if we fall heir to the British tax system, first of all, the negotiations between the Scottish government and the UK authorities uh, could go on for several years. And it's open for considerable disagreement, uh, not just between the two governments, but also um, involving the taxpayers as well. Uh, we have a very, very complicated system in the UK, as you mentioned. I think it's 17,000 pages in the tax log or something like that. Um, and I don't really think, I think we want to try and start with a pretty clean sheet. Uh, and if you actually do move to something like IFA, to the exclusion of more or less all other taxes, then you're starting with a clean sheet. And that means that we can get off to a really good start. And one of the really important things I think that we've got to get ahead in is that um, when we're a new state, economic development, and economic development powered by Scots is really, really important to us. And so we've got a whole load of potential entrepreneurs Entrepreneurs, if they do, you know that their tax is going to be very, very modest indeed, or AGFA is going to be very, very modest indeed. That gives them a space to develop, really develop. And some will be very, very successful, and some will be maybe not quite so successful. But having said that, as, as that develops, and we see how our economy develops, then, you know, these people who make an awful lot of money, it will be incumbent on the Scottish government to actually see what these people are contributing to our society. And uh, AGFA does not preclude a wealth tax coming in later on or some other uh, some other model uh, of, of, of taxation coming in. But I, I think it is so important that when we become independent and even in the run up to independent, that we are we basically are an economic dynamo. And this actually gives the freedom for people to actually develop, you know, their, their fabulous ideas uh, and uh, you know, develop our economy uh, to a handsome level uh, far quicker than would be the case if we're still going to have to negotiate with the UK government uh, over a long period of time uh, with the, how, you know, as, as, a, as a successor to their tax system. Right, okay. Um, next question, um, Derek Pretzel. There's so many things happening. I, I, first of all, I want just very quickly to say Graham has done something that the rest of the Scottish Land Revenue Group have not done, which is he's produced a model. 
the rest, the rest of the group's been functioning on theory, and Graham has produced a model which is capable of interrogation and prodding and poking and stuff. There's been lots of discussion uh, about the various things that AGR and universal basic income or citizens' income can accomplish. And those are the two most fundamental things that an independent Scotland can do, is to implement those two things. The problem is we're talking about doing it now, uh, and we're talking about an undescribed finished uh, process or package. My question centred around why has the um, the SNP not actually formed a working party to look at this uh, from within its membership? Uh, we talk about stakeholders and stuff which are generally vested interests. There's enough expertise and skill in the party to sit down and produce a working model. We don't have to tinker with the existing model, build a new one. Buckminster Fuller says, don't repair the old one, build a new one that makes the old one redundant. And we should be looking at actually developing a system because the outputs are more, way more than you've talked about. And the whole thing should be centered on quality of life for people, not on taxation. Taxation is merely a tool to get to the end point, which is quality of life for people. And AGR and universal basic income increases the amount of entrepreneurship. It takes people above the threshold level of survivor and gives them a platform from which they can excel and, and develop from. It is such an important thing. I'll shut up now, because I could go on for hours, as you know, Ruth, but I'll well, shut up. Well, I come in on that. Um, so there's nothing to stop anybody setting up working groups. Uh, I, I'm not averse to, to, to working groups, task forces, uh, people considering these matters. Um, the one issue I take with your question is that tax doesn't matter. Tax absolutely does matter because yeah. none of our none of the services that deliver that quality of life that you're talking about can actually function without public revenue. And that's where I go back to my three objectives. As somebody who's in the business of trying to take policy decisions with the devolved, devolved taxes that we have. Now, I'm not saying devolved, devolution is perfect. It's not. So I'm not using that as a model. But I'm saying that every year I have got to make decisions on actual tax policies that continue to ensure we've got supplies of public revenue to fund our NHS. And at the same time, make it fairer. So you could take a principled, principled stance, take income tax. Let's just say we accept income tax right now as, as, a, as an okay model. Income tax. On a point of principle, you could say that the top, pay, top uh, rate payers should pay 50p because it's more progressive. It's fairer. They're earning a load of money. Uh, and at the same time, about 45% of, um, of, of, of residents in Scotland don't actually pay any tax because they either fall under the, uh, the personal allowance threshold or uh, they're not in work. Now, the problem with that principled stance is what if it doesn't actually supply the revenue that I need? And that's where I mean that, you know, we have got to take principled stances on our, on our tax whilst at the same time um, delivering uh, revenue. So that's where I take issue just with your comment, which is probably a throwaway comment, that tax doesn't uh, matter, well-being Well-being does matter, but it's how do you get to well-being? To get to well-being, well, you've got to have a budget that understands where the money's coming from and how the money's spent. Well, just to pick up Graham's point, land is finite. 
you know how much money you want, divide it by the land within the, the various compartments. Secondly, your point about income tax, some people don't pay any income tax. Well, that's meaningless to the person because they don't have enough money to survive. So the whole point about the whole system is move the people up the way to, to get them above the level of survivor. There's a Frenchman who said, we adopt the clothing of our social class. Most of the people in Scotland wear the clothing of survivors. They worry about where they're going to get money from week to week to pay the, the rent, to, to feed the kids, to clothe the kids. We, that's, that's immoral. We need to take about that. Land is finite. And the one thing Graham hasn't mentioned is we own the seabed as well. We've got over 52% of the seabed. Now you think, well, how do you charge that? Well, there's oil companies out there, and I know we're moving to a green economy, but they're there just now. And they want, they want standard predictable tax rates. And you can do that easily with, with AGR. Well, so agreed on, on your first comment about uh, well-being. But the point I'm trying to make here is that everybody wants to talk. I'm not saying here. I'm just saying in life <laughs> Everybody can talk about better ways of spending money. What we're interested in right here is what's the fairest way Great. of raising it. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's, for me, the tension. Because fairness matters. Progressivity matters. So we built our when we when it came to devolving income tax, we went back to basics and we said, right, what are the the what is going to be the basic principles? And we thought, well, do you know what? There was this guy called Adam Smith. He had four principles of taxation. Um, and actually, if you look at them, you might disagree with a lot of other things he said. But those four principles are the four principles that we've we've built income tax on. Now, that's just a very narrow one, which is uh, propor proportionality to the ability to pay. Um, efficiency so you're raising what you need certainty in other words you know what's coming in so that you can agree to pay the nurses um, and convenience it's not so bureaucratic you don't get any money because it's so difficult to pay there's your four criteria now that's with the current system so the principles of how you raise the funding in a fair but guaranteed way is just as important as how you spend it to bring people out of poverty uh, in the first place Totally agree with you. Just remember, Adam Smith, the one that talked about rent and ground rent, he was the one that coined it. So it, it goes back, another good Scotsman, another yeah. good man, you I know. Another, briefly, and I know this is becoming up, we're hogging the conversation, but I'll show. Go, go back to my comment also about fairness. So is it fair that Facebook operating out of a cupboard pays very little because the cloud is not taxable. You know, we're talking about the finite resources of land as though all revenue is generated from land or value is generated from land. We now have this third sphere. We've got your marine base, we've got the land base, Absolutely. we've got this third sphere, which is the cloud. Now, yeah. I can't see the cloud to tax the cloud, but the cloud exists. So how do we ensure that Facebook and the big tech giants pay adequate supplies of tax? When they're not actually occupying much ground. Kate, I'm at one with you. The, 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 the danger in that is we need to keep as much of our money in our country circulating and working in our country and not in offshore accounts. Uh, we, the money's ra raised here should be working for the local level, for the regional level, for the national level. And we are leaking like a sieve at this moment in time. AGR does not address that. That's up to better minds like like yourselves to uh, to to uh, to address that. But AGR is a solid foundation for building a 
a revenue generating system which creates fairness at its heart. It changes land use. Anders Poulsen, largest landowner in the country, he pays Denmark for the land he owns in Scotland. So they're building toilets and social community centres on the money he's sending them for land he has here. That money is not going to build systems in Scotland. That's why AGR is so important. Sorry, I'll shut up. Kate, we met. We met up at Spean Bridge two years ago. Ronnie Greer left his car keys in his boot. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the other thing, the interesting thing there, Derek, and thanks very much for your contribution, which is always very erudite, Amazie, is that, um, you know, when we're talking about the Facebooks of this world, etc., uh, how are they going to be taxed? Can they actually be taxed without there being some sort of global agreement, adequately taxed without some sort of global ag agreement? And if that's the case, you know, are the Americans up for it? Because at the end of the day, these companies are basically based in America. Yeah. And they get an economic advantage from that. So, you know, I, I agree. I think in some ways it's, it's scandalous that they can make so much money. Um, but, you know, if we keep thinking about that, but we don't actually know a way in which we can tax them adequately, you know, I think we've got to basically deal with what we have control over. And the one thing that we have control over, or potentially control over, is our land and also our seabed, because at the bottom of the sea is land. Thank you very much. Moving on. Um, Rob Gibson, you have two questions, one for Graham and one for Kate. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'm, the um, Social Justice and Fairness Commission has been looking at uh, a lot of these issues and will be reporting very soon back to the party that instituted it and uh, uh, it was agreed by conference. So you'd imagine that uh, tax and land would be one of the key things. But I, I want to ask Graham a question, first of all, in relation to the, the practicalities. Mm -hmm. And he writes in the Independence magazine today about the essential elements for collecting the tax are all there. Revenue Scotland, registers of Scotland, land type definitions, a calculator and a tape measure. They're all you need to work out your liability for AGFRR. Okay, Graham. Uh, what was the cost and how long did it take to assess sh shooting rates, sporting rates, uh, agreed in 2016? And what resources and tax money would it take to assess not just land, but in your proposals, buildings and roofs in your proposals? That's my first question. I'll ask Kate separately if I can. I mean, I'm, I'm in favour of, of all rates and, uh, and taxes to, to basically be abolished. I don't think you need them. Uh, but the way that you do, I mean, it's really, really so simple um, in that you put the responsibility on the, the landowner or the property or the space owner to actually register with Revenue Scotland. So they register with Revenue Scotland online and the, the website, the Revenue Scotland's website. And basically, if their title their title has been uh, registered already in the land register, then th there's already a, a part of the what's called the cadastral plan of Scotland, which the, the land register has, the whole of Scotland. And, um, you know, so you know the extent of what they've got a title for. Uh, now, for the properties on it, it's their responsibility to also calculate 
the, um, the, the area of the properties that they have on it. And also um, from that, they can calculate from the rates, uh, the land type, you know, how much their liability is going to be. And of course, the, the register is going to be public. So, um, you know, everyone will be entitled to see it free of charge. And if they think that somebody is pulling the Michael, you know, they, they, it's perfectly right in order for them to uh, enable um, Revenue Scotland to challenge that. Um, so, you know, to a large extent, that will be self-policing. But there will be, uh, it will be possible for Revenue Scotland to, uh, you know, to do spot checks. And really, with the development of, of, of algorithms, uh, and satellites and all the rest of it, 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 it's becoming possible actually to measure properties without actually anyone having to survey them, you know? So we, we can use technology tremendously in this. Um, on the, uh, so, so, you know, that, that's the way it's done. And even if your title hasn't been registered yet, and there's a lot of landed estates that haven't registered their titles yet, um, that's, this, that's the beauty of this because the obligation is still on the, the owner to uh, register with the, the uh, Revenue Scotland. And if their title hasn't been registered yet, they have got to produce a plan showing what they claim ownership of. So they claim ownership of that, and they basically pay, not only do they then pay their, their AGFA on that, but also that kickstarts the, the registration of their title in the land register. Now, if they come to say, well, we actually own more than what we, we said we owned in Revenue Scotland uh, when it comes to the land register, then basically they've really got to watch because they're in danger of causing a fraud on the government by trying to claim that they own something more than what they have registered as being liable for tax. So that's why all the problems which there are just now, you know, of completing the land register, particularly within a lot of these big estates, but also actually with some public sector organisations such as Network Rail and even the Forestry Commission, you know, this is some way of getting this completed so that the, 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 the completion of the land register doesn't go on and on and on and on. And I see that as somebody who's actually started in practice and easily uh, when the land register was first introduced. And it was introduced in Renfrewshire. It was the first county to be introduced. And I remember going to a, um, a seminar on it given by the, the registers of Scotland at the time. And they were asked how long it would take to complete the land register. Now, this was 1981. And they said 10 years. And we're only, what, 60, 64% of it completed. So this is a way of completing it now and forcing, forcing landowners basically to, um, to be upfront and honest about what they own. Okay, well, if that's the case and you don't know how long it took to uh, assess sporting rates and uh, indeed to deal with the appeals, you're totally underestimating the amount of work that's involved in this because you're asking for a system that's entirely different from the one which we have at the present time. Uh, Fergus Ewing pointed out in 2012, the land registration should be completed for public bodies by 2019. It's more or less the Forest Enterprise and Forest Land Scotland have done a huge amount of work to the detriment of people who are trying to rent land off them, as I know, and, and comrades here on this uh, know the exact example. Uh, but the point is, we're in a position that it actually requires a heck of a lot of people to do this job. And while it's great to think about all these modern techniques, and it's wonderful to put something like that in place, what you're actually talking about is something like five to 10 years work. And if you ask in Spain, 
or if you ask in Switzerland and people who've got multi-layered uh, land registers and so on, from the point of view of tax and spatial planning and all the rest of it, it takes a lot longer. So it isn't a silver bullet just like that. I better ask Kate my question, I think, because um, Kate, the, the Scottish Land Commission's embarked on a year-long in-depth study on land and property taxation. Do you believe that the public goals that we're seeking, such as freeing land for social housing and community projects, can be released by only one tax? No, is the short and hopefully easy answer. Um, I don't. I also don't think it's just about tax. Even if you were to talk about a whole host of different taxes, if you take one minor problem, one minor symptom of the, the, the difficulties around land ownership right now, which is affordable housing, the question is constantly put to me uh, in terms of how we resolve the difficulty with affordable housing. And to my mind, there is no one single bullet. So if you, it, you know, there's, there's the need to increase the supply of affordable homes, but once they're in the market, there's then the restrictions required on how they can be sold on and to whom and at what cost and at what markup. And then thirdly, there's what you do with the current market of, of, of second homes and uh, and how you intervene in that private market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm using that just as an example where I think questions about land can never, ever be resolved um, uh, by tax, never mind asking if it can be resolved only by, by one tax. And I also think that it's a, it's a flawed assumption to think all patterns of land ownership right now are, are flawed as well. So for example, we have support in place for crofters to build their own home on their own property, on their own land as one way of fixing the problem about affordable homes and affordable housing. And um, sometimes community ownership delivers exactly what we want. Sometimes it stands in the way of the community actually being able to thrive and prosper. So I think there needs to be a whole host of different approaches. I think tax is a pretty key one though, because tax we do know can either incentivize or disincentivize, but it's always a blunt instrument and it will always be too blunt to deliver on our policy objectives in and of itself. Additional dwelling supplement is a good example of that on top of LBTT, where we, we tax people an additional 4% if they're buying a second home, which sounds great in practice until you hear all the hugely challenging stories about so-and-so's granny who can't sell her first home because of X, Y, Z, and she's been now hit with a tax bill. So short answer without going into a long waffle is no. Thank you very much. Um, leave it to other people to comment. My questions are on the chat function. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Next, we have Chris Hanlon. So my question is that given that we have complete, total devolved control of local authority taxation, um, so, yeah, what sort of contingency planning are you doing for you know, looking at stuff like AGFA or some sort of, you know, phasing in some sort of land tax or other taxation for local authorities so you can take the pressure off central budgets? You know, because, you know, at the moment we're, we're in this situation where we subsist, subsist on pocket money that we get from Westminster. So what are we looking to build up our own tax base as a contingency in the short term, the medium term and the long term? You know, given that we do have so much devolved power, um, and just very quickly, you said that you had advice that um, a 50% um, marginal rate of tax was going to reduce um, your actual take. 
Um, and I wondered specifically where you got that advice from and why you were giving it credibility, given that we all heard Rick, Professor Richard Murphy tell the Finance Committee about three years ago that you know the academic research was that you would you wouldn't see a reduction in take until you hit like a sixty eight percent marginal rate of income tax. I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Well, I just take the second part in first. Uh, I was using that as an example, which I think it's a really good example of where sometimes your objectives around taxation are mutually exclusive. So it's not to say that one is right or one is wrong, but I think that it shows that if you're, for example, if you choose as part of your objectives to prioritise revenue generation, that you might do something different on the points around justice. If you prioritise justice, then that might have an impact on, on revenue and it's not just one simple um, one simple objective. Um, in terms of advice, so every year we can only spend in Scotland what we're forecast to raise. So if that forecast dips because of behavioural changes as a result of a particular policy choice, then it doesn't matter whether ultimately there's more money or less money than the forecast we can still only spend what's what's forecast. So in terms of um, the optimum level for uh, tax rates, that's a slightly different debate out with a devolved context, because in a devolved context, it's so easy to move, then there's real challenges about behavioral impact. So that's just the point I was making around, um, around 50%. You asked a really good question about local taxation. Absolutely brilliant, because um, a, local taxation does have a very important role to play in terms of and and most of our big taxes are devolved i uh, sorry are um are localized so non-domestic rates there's big debates as to whether whether setting the rate should be for central government or local government so if i park that for a moment devolved non-domestic rates is a is a local taxation in other words when it comes to local government coffers it's partly made up of non-domestic rates and partly made up of grants so it's a local tax so there's an incentive there for local authorities to be investing in economic development so that more um, non-domestic rates are generated and obviously council tax is a local tax as well and non-domestic rates and council tax are two of the biggest uh, drivers when it comes to, 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 to public revenue in Scotland so in terms of uh, other localized taxes if there was an advance of independence going to be any new taxes they would have to be local taxes so they would have to fit within the that that toolbox of local taxes that we have and but they'd have to be local tax because whilst theoretically we have the powers to um we have the powers right now to come up with a new national tax it's got to get permission from westminster and the welsh situation it's not gone terribly well when they've tried to do the same so they have just been stonewalled so I think your question largely asked sort of in advance of independence. So I've answered it in the context of in advance of, of independence, but there's probably a lot more that could be said on both those questions after independence. Thanks well, very much. Can we move please to Mike McKenzie? Can I, can I come in just before? Oh, sorry, sorry, Graham, yes. Sorry, just, sorry. First, first of all, Kate, I've got to take issue with you that it can only be, you know, that we can only have a national tax with the consent of Westminster. Because Section 80I of the Scotland Act empowers empowers the Scottish Parliament to create taxes based based on the contracts of land. It doesn't define what a contract is. It doesn't even have to be in paper. It can be a notice, even such as a, a similar to a dangerous building notice or something like that. 
So, you know, it's, um, I would suggest that you get your, your Scottish government lawyers, and I'm quite happy to give them an advice, and I'm not going to charge them for it, you know, to, to actually look at Section 80i of the Scotland Act. Um, the, um, the other thing is that um, from, what, um, from what Chris was saying, first of all, it just so happens that by the grace of God, I am on the, um, the, the Scottish National Assembly on Climate Change, which is meeting just now. God knows how I got onto it, but I've got onto it anyway. And um, one of the things that we're, one of the groups that I'm looking at is housing. And how do we, uh, housing just now, the, um, the amount of carbon that's generated from housing is about 33% of Scotland's total housing, uh, of total um, uh, carbon output. Now, if we retrofitted every house in Scotland uh, and gave them, I gave everyone 100% grants to do that. Uh, based on the advice that we got from uh, one of the architect experts who's speaking to the Climate Change Assembly, uh, it would cost about um, seven, seven billion pounds a year for 10 years. It would cost us about 70 billion pounds. Uh, and that would equate to something like about 50 pounds a year for a small flat. Now, if you consider the amount of, um, if they were to pay AGFA, now, if you were to consider, you know, uh, the, the effects of that, you would get rid of fuel poverty, you would get rid of, the, the cost of heating properties would be literally between 100 and 200 pounds a year, something like that. So that's the sort of thing that we could be doing now. Uh, and that, that, that's not just about climate justice, that's about public health as well. Uh, the other thing is that land types, you know, when you're talking about a mobile phone shop, Chris, that's fine. You know, I've just shown four different land types because it's of simplicity. To, but you could have umpteen different variants of that, um, uh, depending on the different types of property or different land or, or uses even. Um, what I've got against that is that, you know, the more complex you make things, the more opportunity there is to avoid it. Uh, and that's the big problem uh, with the UK taxation. So, you know, we would need to be careful about that, but there is nothing in principle with this system whereby you couldn't have far more different land types and at different rates uh, going forward. Um, and that's, you know, that's it. And, and just going back to, to, if I may just go back to Rob's point, uh, I don't know why it took so long to sort out uh, all, the, all the necessary things to get this off the ground are already here. We've got the land register, we've got Revenue Scotland. All it needs is just a kind of expansion of their website. We've got this cadastral plan. Uh, and if provided that the land types, the rate that we charge on land types is the same for everyone within that land type. So whether you own a tenth of an acre or whether you own 220,000 acres, you know, you're being charged at the same rate, so you're being treated the same. Sorry, Mike, you were coming in, I think. Thanks, yeah, Mike. Uh, thank you. Um, I'd like to start off, first of all, by complimenting our hosts, Ruth and Breeze. This is a fascinating discussion. And so, you know, real compliments to both of you for organising this. My concerns, as you might guess, uh, uh, given that I was a builder for many years, are practical and quite basic, I suppose, and simple. Um, I think perhaps the best way to illustrate this is to talk about a current controversy involving land on the periphery of Oban at Garavan, where there's a piece of land uh, that's been identified in the local plan as a PDA, a potential development area for housing. 
and where there's a housing association, I understand that are quite keen to build in it, and an owner that would be quite happy to sell the land. And part of the problem with this is that you, you, you know you've got a, a very persuasive, I think, group of people within the community are appalled at this, and they're trying to argue that um, the amenity value of that land far outweighs the benefit, the public benefit of building houses on that land. They're talking about recreational use, they're talking about, you know, taking their dogs for walks, all that kind of thing um, that that land has culturally for many, many years represented to the people of Oban. And, and I think this takes you to two potential problems with the discussion, or, or, or certainly, you know, the first of which is, how you reconcile the economic interest with the public interest. Because we all know that agricultural land, just for the sake of argument, is worth a thousand pounds an acre. But building land, if you build on it, is, and, and, and certainly any kind of density, you can be talking about a million pounds an acre. So, you know, it's not all about the, 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 the economic uh, um, uh, revenue raising ability of the bit of land. That also applies in farming. You know, what type of farming do you do? Um, you know, are you growing asparagus? Are you, is your farming operation some form of industrial farming? Or is it some type of farming that's very much got climate change and the environmental interest in mind? Um, if it's forestry land, um, is it high value forestry land that's creating local jobs or is it the type of forestry activity that exports the jobs and the economic value to another part of the country? And what, what I'm trying to get at here is, uh, Graham's described this as a pretty simple tax and I dare say at one level if you look at it, it may be quite simple. But I think in order to work in practice, it may need to be much more finely grained than that. And by the time you roll the clock on a few years after introduction and you iron out all the unfairnesses and all the problems and all the landowners and the people that seek to benefit from the land go and speak to their accountants who try and minimise the amount of taxation that they pay, we may very well end up in a situation of complexity that approaches the kind of tax system that we've got at the minute without necessarily along mike sorry i have to hurry you along so, so, my, comp so my question is to each of uh, to, to kate and graham and, and forgive me ruth this i think is a complex issue um how do we reconcile those two interests public interest or community interest on the one hand um health and well-being and, and the economic interest. It seems to me that there, there, there may be difficulties there. And, and, and I'd, I'd be interested in, in Graham and, uh, you know, and Kate's answer to, the, to that question. Want to go for it, Graham? I mean, well, I, I, I was going to start by saying, uh, Mike was talking about farmers and I saw my, uh, my um, farming uncle online tonight so i dare not talk about uh, farming <laughs> the presence of actual farmers so but but you have just illustrated i think the second point i made in my opening remarks which is about objectives now i was specifically talking there about taxation but in terms of uh, other objectives we have 
I think that is why it's very, very difficult to ever be in a situation where there is a one single overriding tax. And if you look at the, the evolution of tax over the last um, uh, centuries, you know, it has evolved as our economy has changed, as politicians and governments have new objectives. And that's why it is in the complex state that it's in. So I think there's a huge argument for um, reducing the complexity, making it simpler, making it more convenient for people to pay. But I would be of the mind that those different objectives that governments have can't all be delivered. Or, and by government, I mean the people. I'm using code, but government being elected by the people on the basis of what the people's priorities are to achieve those uh, multiple objectives. It are it, it does require um, an ability to, to to use different taxes, and I think um, you know purely transactional taxes, purely um, income-based taxes, don't take into account of wealth, and purely wealth-based taxes don't take into account transactions and income. So therefore, you do need um, a variety of taxes, which will inevitably make it more complex. Okay. Uh First of all, my system does not stop the planning system in any way. Uh, the planning system still exists so that if people wanted to change a use or whatever, they would still have to go through a planning process. Uh, so that's the first point. Um, the next point is that what's more important? Is it more important to raise more money for public funding so we can address poverty? In my submission, that is the most important thing that we can deal with. We must eradicate poverty. Now, if Kate was agreeable to the, the Scottish government's um, computer guys to, and to go through the model of what I'm suggesting, just to see if it's more or less right, and we can raise this sort of amount of money through AGFA, uh, so that we can give £200 to every man, woman and child in this country every week, you know, is that not more important just now than thinking about, oh, well, we, we're getting bothered, we're getting bothered with the margins of what's fair and what's not, because really the greatest injustice in this country is poverty. And if we can address that, then I think all the other things are things which we can, we can deal with, um, with going forward. But the question about the public and the biggest public interest is actually to address poverty so that nobody is just existing, that they are living and that they have fulfilling lives. And I I would love it if the, the, the Scottish government's economists and all the rest of it would actually test this out and see if we could raise this money. Forget about indulging in fairness and all the rest of it. But if we could put £200 a week in every man, woman, child's pocket, I think that would be one of the greatest things that this country has ever achieved. And I believe that we can do it because I've said the land is there. It's for the government to see how much things will cost, divide it up and see if people can actually afford it who own the land and the space. Uh, and as I say, the public interest regarding planning, it's still there. It's not going to go away. That's the whole point about this being simple. You don't need to deal with that. And the other thing is that, you know, We've got bags of land in this country. I mean, we're full of land in this country. Uh, you could actually even say 
to, you could put a, a deemed planning consent, time-limited planning consent in place, basically say that there can be four homesteads built on every farm, you know, being maybe a, an acre or two acres each. And that would create hundreds of thousands of, uh, of, of properties where houses could be built. Uh, and that would repopulate, that would repopulate a rural, rural economy uh, just by having that. Drop the price, drop the of land, you know, and it really doesn't matter whether it then becomes developable land or not. It's giving the land so that the houses can be built and it drops the price of land considerably. And I've been on at that for God knows, I think the last 15 years, first time I raised it, an SMT conscious was 15 years ago. So you can, there's so many things you can do, but don't, we, we, we worry about the margins about, you know, second homes and this and that and all the rest of it. Forget about second homes, you know, forget about it. We've got the land to build the houses. Most of the second homes I know, you wouldn't want to live in all year. If, if I could just briefly come back, Graham, I mean, I share your aspirations. Um, I absolutely agree with you that we should eradicate po poverty, homelessness and so on. It's immoral in this uh, the time in which we're living, um, but but um, I don't necessarily agree that um, I think there's a lot of merit in the proposals that you've got. I'm just saying that perhaps you're overstating the merit somewhat, and there could be complexity and there could be difficulty. I could see potential in a kind of hybrid system. I think Kate may have been alluding to that. That, that, that what we have is so that in our taxation toolbox we retain some taxes that you know, have their effect on earnings and some taxes that have got their effect on, on, on property or land. And we've got, you know, each of those um, operate in a fairer and simpler basis, at least to start off with. Um, and so, you know, I'm right with you on the outcomes. You know, we'll share that, but it's not necessarily a given that because we agree we should eradicate poverty, that we can always be in agreement in exactly how we do it. So, um, you know, but I do think this is a wonderful discussion and, you know, I look forward to it continuing in some manner. Thank you, Mike. Um, next we have Shona Glenn. Hi, thanks. Thanks. And, and actually, first of all, just to echo, echo what somebody else already said, thanks to the organiser for a, a really fascinating discussion. And um, I, I really just wanted to go to pick up on Kate's very sensible comments earlier on about the need to look at tax as a system with a purpose rather than sort of a collection of unrelated instruments. And the reason I really want to do that is because I, I know it's a really, really difficult thing to do because as soon as you start a conversation about tax, everybody immediately wants to talk about their own favourite instrument. So really I'm interested in Kate's thoughts about how we can open up more holistic conversation about what we want our tax system to achieve and you know really what it's for and i was really interested in what you were saying earlier kate about the need for a principles-based approach and i hope hoped you might be able to elaborate a little bit on what you think those principles might look like thanks it's an absolutely brilliant question so again you'll forgive me for constantly using uh, actual examples within devolution but it's one thing that I've been really keen to. If you take the budget process, in advance of the budget, I am bombarded by people who can tell me how to spend the money better. So they want to spend it on X, they want to spend it on Y, they want to spend it on Z, and it's really good conversations. Um, a lot of it's about tackling inequalities. 
And then we come to talking about tax. And the only people that want to speak to me, with the exception of tonight's esteemed company, um, the only people that want to talk to me is a few uh, tax professionals. And there's something wrong with that. So last year, I decided to fix that, which was to have uh, roundtable meetings about tax with unlikely suspects. So I had them with um, a lot of representatives from the charity sector, some academics, but not your tax academics, your inequality academics, people that were looking at social reform, that kind of thing. So, so wanting to hear about how not just seeing tax as a means of raising money that we spend in a fair way, but that we're actually using the raising of it in a way that deals with some of those injustices in its, at its very heart. Now, I think there's a problem when I think it's 45% of, of people don't pay tax at all. Not because I want them to pay more tax, but because it tells you something that they're not earning enough, even those in work are not earning enough from unfairly low wages, from inflexible contracts or, or too informal contracts. It tells you something. And I think tax is a brilliant way of trying to identify what some of the problems are. But to resolve it, we need a bigger group of people. So just to use that as an example to, to confirm what you've just said. Terms of the more holistic conversation, so that's the more holistic conversation. In terms of the principles, I don't think your only principle can be raising revenue, because I think that I, I loved what Chris said about it being redistributive justice. I just think that is a, and, and I think that if you're trying to tackle inequalities and tackle injustice, everything you do must be geared towards that, including your tax. So is it fair or is it not fair? that currently in Scotland with land and buildings transaction tax, you pay 10% for properties over 350K and you pay nothing within that first um, band if you're a first time buyer or you're just buying a property um, at a certain uh, level. I think that's fairer because it's that point that, you know, it, it assumes certain things. That if you're buying a big house, you've probably got a bigger income and you can afford to contribute a little bit more um, uh, to to um, to the coffers. So in terms of that principles-based approach, it cannot just be revenue raising. I think it has to be, how do we use these as tools to, to tackle inequality? But then I'm, gonna, I'm going to contradict myself because it can't just be a tool for tackling inequality. And I'll keep going round and round and round and round on this, that there's multiple objectives and you're balancing these multiple objectives. If you just adopt one objective for your tax, you risk causing unintended consequences. If I just wanted to raise lots of money, I could do that tomorrow. But it would lead to injustices and unfairnesses. And I think the way that you do something is almost just as important as the objective that you're trying to achieve. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Can I, can I ask Kate, what's unjust about the principle of what I'm proposing because if it raises enough and it can be checked if it raises enough then to say you can take everyone out of poverty uh, it's based on the principle really that the bigger space that you have the more you pay um, and that uh, not only that but it, it creates an economic dynamo to enable people to work and earn uh, confidently knowing how much their ag for liability is 
um, and that really frees up an economy um, tremendously, and it does it very quickly. I think there, there'd be two things I'd say. The first is, I don't think it's the only way to take people out of poverty. So uh, I think there's more than just governments giving cash as a means of taking people out of poverty. I think there's a lot to do with employability, education, uh, social support as well, that's important uh, to do that. The two questions I would have about it are uh, my Facebook um, quandary, where in an increasingly uh, global and cloud-based world, taxing land does not tax uh, the, the overall, um, uh, I, I don't think it's, it's the only, only thing that needs to be taxed bluntly. And I think the second thing would be that in taxing only one thing, land, it's, it's again, there's a whole host of different reasons. You could get, for example, uh, in the Highlands particularly, where we've got too much land, we don't know what to do with all this land. Some of it is completely uh, useless land, dare I say it, um, uh, full of peat and uh, you can't build on it, you can't do anything on it. Uh, and, and we're taxing that at the same uh, level as a piece of prime property in the middle of Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And if I think of the number of uh, elderly people in particular who have inherited a plot of land, for example, that they can't sell, they can't get rid of, and they're being taxed on that, I think it just doesn't take into account the holistic circumstances in which somebody's in. But the, rate, but the rates are different. I mean, the centre of Glasgow, um, it's an urban place, so it's it's £10 and a penny per square metre. Uh, a bit of rough grazing, it's not point not one six six pounds per square metre. So, I mean, it's not, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not being taxed at all uh, in a similar way. Um, it's uh, so... It wouldn't be... Big a replacement. If you've got somebody in the middle of Edinburgh who's on a salary of 150k and they mm -hmm. lose all their income tax taxation um, mm -hmm. and they're only taxed on that plot of ground, the difference in rates between an old granny, no offence to the old grannies, in the middle of the Highlands who's got a bit of land being taxed just marginally less than somebody who's got three incomes coming into the home in the middle of Edinburgh. I think that's where it doesn't do justice to both circumstances. Well, well, the first thing to be said, the old granny's going to get an extra £10,000 that she's not got just now. Uh, and, uh, okay, yes, you know, there are going to be people, more winners. There's going to be a lot of winners and people will win. Some people win more than, than others will win. But uh, the, the position is that these three people probably in Edinburgh eventually will own different properties and all the rest of it. And as a result of that, they will, they will also be, you know, probably buying, buying more land or buying space or whatever. Uh, but if the system, if the system manages to, to raise enough, uh, raise enough in order to do all the things that you as a government would want to do and to take people out of poverty, you know, surely it's worth doing it this, this way because it's, it's, it's quick, it's immediate. I mean, I understand just now, for example, that um, the income tax which I pay um, to the UK government, which comes back to you, you don't see it for two or three years. Is that right? I see the quantity of it. I see the quantum of it. So but I you don't see actually the... get the cash. You don't get the cash. Is that right? It doesn't go into your your account. 
It doesn't go into my account, but I can spend it. Yes, right. Okay, right. Well, with this system, you know exactly how much you're getting at the start of every year, and you know every month how much you're going to get, uh, and you don't need to wait for that. You know, so from a, from a government budgeting and revenue point of view, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's much better than what you've got just now, and it can be done. Just get, just, just get your get your economists and your civil servants and all the rest of it to talk to me, you know, and we'll get it through. Hi, can I can I very quickly? There's a there's a message in the chat from Andrew Kay saying he sent in a a, a question before the meeting. Um, sorry, Andrew, I've just looked through my emails and I can't find it. So, would you like to very very quickly ask it now, please? I'm very much in favour of tax reform, including a land tax, but I'm very much against uh, a single top-down uh, approach on this. Uh, but to be brief, my question was around that principle and the fact that uh, by way of a pushback, there's been lots of talk in history about uh, no taxation without representation. Right now, at local government, which covers uh, huge areas, in Highlands and Islands, we've got representation without any actual taxation, or shall we say the receipts of the taxation. Uh, and I think we we need to, to bear in mind the democratic aspects of any big changes we make. Uh, history in my lifetime is littered by disasters uh, wrecked on us by the Tory party, uh, district councils, regional councils, current councils, and the complete destruction of the true local government, I think we need to turn things on their heads if, if we are to get our local communities and rural communities and our urban communities to be more successful. And that should be taken into account. Thank you. I agree. I mean, the whole, I mean, as I mentioned, it's, it, it's possible with this system, in fact, highly possible with this system, that we give more power to local authorities, you know, so that they can set their own rates and so that they are, are far more independent of the financial uh, contributions that they get from, from central government. Um, and, you know, there's no reason why, you know, we can't be like Norway with, with 400 local authorities instead of 32 or 300 that they have in Finland. You know, empower people, you know, and that gives them the responsibility and we will find that our, our communities are much nicer places to live in, you know, and we, we also, they're also more accountable. Uh, and so, you know, the, I, I'm very much in favour of the devolution of power within Scotland, you know, to local, real local communities and let them go on with it instead of the, the 32 that we have, which were largely a construct of the Tory government because they were trying to gerrymander things so that they could get, to, get, to get more power than they were actually entitled to electorally. Sorry, Graham. I don't think I'd add, uh, I'd add to that. I think um, the, the, the challenges about representation are acute and I think the distinct the the diff the disconnect is what I'm trying to say the disconnect between spend and who gets to decide how it's spent and raising tax is uh, is a real problem at every level of government okay thank right, you I see a lot of hands up would it be better to just bring in a all the comments back to back I'm unfortunately going to have to leave at nine o'clock quite sharp but if we just bring in all the comments and that would be so if everybody's I'll, I'll let you all speak one after the other can you keep it brief though 
There's been various references to the Scottish Land Commission, and I'm one of the commissioners on the Scottish Land Commission. And as the key pointed out at the beginning there, we've set up a tax advisory group that is looking at uh, a wide plethora of uh, various levers, financial levers, tax, uh, that can be particularly, we're looking at this moment in a tax in Scotland within the competency of Scotland. So we're looking at land and building transaction tax, and we're looking at also a tax that could be looking at the possibility of uh, addressing concentrated land ownership and also at a vacant derelict land. And then we're moving on to look at wider issues which are reserved to Westminster in terms of tax. But as also has been mentioned by Rob in passing, we will be undertaking a wide uh, review of all these various uh, fiscal uh, levers and hope to report at the end of September. I would also just point out very briefly, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we have uh, undertaken, uh, commissioned a scoping report on all the various tax interventions that could be looked at in terms of tax on land and property. And a copy of that report is on our website. Um, so again, I think we've also got the benefit of uh, having a presentation from Graham McCormack on the 15th of March. So we'll be able to discuss in a lot more detail the proposals coming on AGFAR. Um, so I just wanted to intervene. I'm also a resident of Oban, so hopefully that allows me the discretion to, to talk a wee bit more there. So thank you, Chair, for the opportunity. And uh, hopefully people can see the work that we're doing. We, we publish everything on our website as we go on. Thank you. Um, Mary McCabe. Quite early on, Kate, you mentioned about um, second homes and how, well, we know it's a problem in the Highlands and Islands that a lot of young people are living in caravans. I know that I know that second homes are taxed um, more highly than, than first homes, but I just wondered how you felt about um, either um, putting a prohibitive tax on uh, a second home um, belonging to someone whose main residence is not in Scotland, um, or even more radically prohibiting the sale of um, second homes to people whose whose house is whose main residence is outside Scotland. Main residence as defined by where they pay their income tax um, usually have to be you know so many months in a year and all this. Um, I know in Denmark they don't allow it because um, all their second homes would be taken over by Germans, and I know quite a lot of Germans who go on holidays to Denmark all the time and are quite happy to live with this and realise it would be a problem if they were allowed to actually buy um, second homes. Out with um, out, outright in Denmark. Um, it's just I wondered how you felt about this as a, as an idea once we're independent. Thank you, Mary. Um, John Gosling. The question I've got really is something that's been bothering me for a very long time. And given the downward spiral that we're going to, well, we, we've already started uh, uh, realising in terms of poverty and unemployment, uh, mainly caused by COVID and of course also austerity. Um, where are you on the notion of a universal basic income? How practicable would it be? And would it be possible to, to, to um, achieve this? Uh, quickly under the existing legislation that we have. Uh, Nick Bowles. Very, very interesting. Early on, Kate, 
pointed out the concept of companies that operate in virtual space. And she put this forward as a, a problem with AGFA. Um, to me, that doesn't seem to be a problem. It just requires somebody somewhere to come up with a formula that translates space in the cloud. It's just another type of land. It's virtual land. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't see why cloud space can't be subject to AGFA. Um, it just requires the will to do it and somebody to come up with a formula that you can bully the tech companies into accepting. Um, so if uh, Kate or Graham wanted to comment on that, that would be nice, although I do appreciate that we're running out of time. Thank you, Nick. Um, Edward Coyle. It's more of an abstract question, and it's uh, to see what the, uh, the two speakers tonight thought of the theory of the veil of ignorance when designing tax plans. Okay, thank you. And lastly, Jeff Hobson. Um, I understood one of the criticisms of the old rate system, and to a slightly lesser extent, the present council tax, was that if you improve your home, you're liable to pay more council tax or rates, and that a ground rent would um, solve this problem. But by including floor and roof, you're putting the problem back into the system. My other concern is that quite a lot of rural properties have a reasonable amount of ground around them. They don't have amenities of a, a city centre, but they have some space. And you're in effect taxing them for having that space, although they've got the lack of amenities. In my particular case, I have a, a listed property with an acre of garden most of which is on quite a steep slope so it's not of any use and because it's the curtailage of a listed building i can't do anything with it other than maintain it as a garden but your annual ground rent at 10 pound a meter will cost me twice my gross income over to you kate and graham quickly and then graham can have the last word um on that uh firstly just um sorry lauren for for singling you out at the beginning but part of the reason for doing that is because i think the work of the land commission is probably absolutely well is absolutely essential in this regard and um, whilst i made a joke at the beginning and i see we're down to 93 participants so some have not got the commitment of some of us uh we this is an exciting time to be talking about tax hugely exciting time to be talking about tax Hugely exciting time to be on the precipice of our country's future, talking about fairness in terms of not just what we spend, but how we build the structures of a country. And those structures have to involve um, how we all contribute to the greater good of our nation. And that contribution is financial as, far, as much as it is uh, all the other things that we contribute as well. So thank you so much, um, Ruth, for putting it on. And I'll happily spend all my Friday nights talking about taxation. Uh, Mary asked about second homes. Yeah, I'm a big supporter of uh, radical action on second homes. Um, I'm a huge supporter of things like rural burdens because I think actually that's um, fairer than, than blunt taxes, but I think tax has got to be one of the things that we do. Um, in terms of universal basic income, the, the reason why it's, I would go so far as to say it's impossible to do in devolution is because you would need it to replace all your welfare already all your welfare powers and your social uh, benefits. Um, it would need to be a replacement. It's not affordable to just tag it on on top of everything else we do. Uh, so 
it's not just legislative powers, although that is important because you need to have the legislative powers over welfare, but from a financial perspective, um, to make it efficient and to make it fair, you would have to um, in, ensure that you're sort of doing it once and you're doing it well and you're doing it effectively. But the pandemic has absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, illustrated the need for it. Um, the tax in the cloud, uh, I would disagree with that humbly, whilst I know the point you're getting at. Um, the whole beauty of a land value tax, which is where I would agree with Graham wholeheartedly, is that it's finite. There's a finite supply. So taxing it um, is not uh, distorting behaviours to as much as um, taxing other things does. Um, it, it's, it's, there are some incentives in place, but it is a, it is a finite um, resource. The cloud is not finite. The cloud is an infinite resource um, and, uh, and measuring the cloud is extremely difficult. So I do think that they are very different things. Uh, and I don't think it's it's um, it, it's easy to just transfer. In terms of um, Edward's question about the, the veil of ignorance, uh, it's not something I've given huge amounts of uh, thought to, but it's quite an interesting question in terms of the extent to which you know what you're trying to achieve and the extent to which you are in a great minute detail analyzing everybody and therefore trying to tax them where and where they are. So I think there's an extent to which um, with tax, tax will always be more blunt than we would like. And I think by its nature, it needs to be blunt. I think the more you try and break down tax, which again is something I agree with Graham on, the more you try and uh, adapt and shape your tax to catch every eventuality, in terms of shaping it to the character of the people that you're serving, the more complex it becomes, the more complex, the less transparency, the less transparency, the less accountability, the less accountability, the more that politicians can get away with anything. So from that perspective, the, 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 the more blunt and the more uh, simple a tax system is, the better. Graham. Okay, thanks, Kate. Um, well, first of all, in second homes, uh, I can remember when the right to buy came in with Mar Margaret Thatcher and councils were very much against it and they inserted title burdens in the title deeds uh, and particularly I remember Ross and Cromarty District Council, um, they had a, a burden that basically you, you couldn't sell on a property as a second home if you bought it under the right to buy. As far as I know, it was never enforced. You know, so, you know, there's no point in putting burdens in like that if you don't enforce them. And we didn't enforce them in the past. And we still don't enforce an awful lot of burdens, title burdens that are in, 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 in people's properties. Um, the, uh, the, the thing about um, uh, the Vale of Ignorance, uh, I didn't really know that until I heard you say it. I actually lived near the Vale of Leaving, which might well be another name for the Vale of Ignorance. God knows. But, you know... I have tried to, based on my experience of life and my professional career, basically say, what is the problem here? Can we raise enough money in order to uh, make people's lives better? And uh, I just want the figures to be checked by government and for them to say whether this is right or whether it's not. Because I am saying to, to, to Kate that, you know, we can raise the money we can raise the money significantly through this one tax. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have other taxes. All I'm saying is this sort of taxation can actually raise more than enough for what we what we need to do. Uh, uh, and that, that's really the basis of, of, of why I started uh, this adventure in the first place. Um, 
the uh, I don't think the cloud idea is actually one that a bit of interest uh, in. However, I think the difficulty we have with that is the traditional um, way that we look in land in Scotland from uh, our common law. Uh, that we need to revise that somewhat. But it's interesting to know if you look at it at the other end, mineral rights. Mineral rights in Scotland generally have a different title from the title that you have for your house or whatever. Uh, very few people own the mineral rights under their house. These are owned by big estates, or they own the local authorities, or they own the Scottish government, or the UK government, uh, or the church. Um, so there, there could be a separate annual ground rent, you know, for, for the mineral holdings which uh, these various organisations have. So we could certainly look at that um, uh, in the bottom. Uh, and um, I think what I'm trying to get at is basically a change of culture. You know, that we look on land, the stewardship of land is really, really important. And that within a period, say about 10 years of bringing this in, people will look at what they own uh, and, and, you know, the requirements and that, you know, if they, they reach a stage in their life when they've got this huge property or whatever, but their, their, their income is a wee bit lower than it was before, they say, well, you know, what is the point of continuing to hold this? Because they will know, you know, what the cost is going to be and they will adjust their life accordingly. And in the meantime, you know, we can have uh, mitigations in place to cap the levels that people have to pay because of their age or because of their, you know, because of their income. But over a period of time, you know, that should become a reducing thing and that we actually have a culture in this country about, you know, how we how we look after our land, how we look after our space eh, and, and how we look after our property. And, and really just to say to Jeff, I'm very sorry, you know, that you'd be paying double. But having said that, you're also going to get, uh, you know, a, a UCI of £10,000 for each for each, um, you know, resident of your home. So, you know, one, one sort of seems to balance against the other. But I think it's the stewardship of land which is and getting that culture uh, at our forefront because we don't look after our properties. Public sector doesn't look after its property. Private sector, an awful lot of that doesn't look after its property and what it has. And it's getting into that. And if we start looking after it, our whole environment improves. You can just imagine all these empty places that you see in your town centres and all the rest of it. These will, these, these will, in very quick measure, these will be replaced with something which is actually making your place look better, your town look better, your street look better, but also bringing some money into our economy. Thanks. Right. Well, I think that's, that's it, everybody. Thank you very much. Kate did say she needed to be away sharp and we've kept her four minutes over the time. Um, Kate, if you really, really want to spend your Friday evenings talking about taxation, I'm more than happy to walk time. <laughs> I jest. But thanks for having me. It's lovely to see all your faces. Yeah. And then thank you for, for allowing me virtually into Argyle. <laughs> well, come. When, when the pandemic's over, come and see us properly. Great. Bye. You're listening to Indie Live Radio and we've just come to the end of this week's Changing Minds programme, which was a discussion and question and answers on the topic of annual ground rent between Grassroots Oban members, Graham McCormack and Kate Forbes, MSP. If you'd like to get hold of a copy of Graham's book, then go to his website, which is called annualgroundrent.scot. That's annualgroundrent.scot. And you'll find out how to order a copy from that.